0: more wonderful and worthy of praise and worship than we can ever describe with words, but we thank you for your word, and we just pray for your Spirit's help this morning, that your word would live and come alive and be vibrant. We pray that by just reading and thinking about your word here this morning and what it is describing, that it would strengthen our faith, deepen our worship, and light on fire our love for God. By contemplating these things in the future, we pray that you would affect our present and the way that we live here on this earth. We give you this time now, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. amen. So, um, in a in a play or a theater, you have a setting, and you have the drama going on, and. Um, <clears throat> The fourth chapter of Revelation that we looked at last week is the setting. That's the heaven that we saw, the colors, the glory, amazing things. But uh, today in chapter five, the uh, drama is going to start taking place. Uh, Just earthly examples say we were watching a a movie or something, and and, uh, we were standing on a street, and the setting was a suburban house. It had a couple of beautiful trees on the lawn. And the grass is, is lovely. And there's an there's a expensive Rolls-Royce car in the driveway. And, and uh, that's the setting. And then we see some characters. And they provide the drama. And we, have, uh, we also see in the setting uh, a, 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 a motorcycle. And, and also along the curb, there's about four other motorcycles. And these guys are dressed in jean jackets. And they've got Nazi symbols on their helmet. And, and they're bad dudes, right? And, uh, and then out the door comes the son, and he's one of them, and the father, who's very well coiffed and, and has a briefcase and is obviously a man of the establishment, and they're arguing about something, and, and so there's the drama going on. Obviously, the son is in conflict with his well-established father, and he wants to run with these guys. There's, there's our drama. Uh, so the, the setting tells us and feeds into the story of the drama. The setting we've seen in chapter four, today we're going to get into the drama and some of the characters in chapter five. And uh, I hope that uh, it's stirring and interesting for you. Remember I was quoting from A.W. Tozer last week, another quote from him just now as he exhorts us in the church about having correct ideas about God. And that's what we're aiming for as we study chapter four and five. Tozer says, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? That comes from the knowledge of the holy. Let's read chapter 5, the first eight verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, which we'll pick up next week. The worship explodes at that point in heaven. So back to verse 1. We encounter a throne, uh, (coughs) and in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne is a scroll. And written on the scroll is, is, is a message, and it's written on the inside and the outside. On both sides of the scroll, the writing is, and this scroll is sealed up with seven seals. So the fact that the scroll is held in the right hand of God on the throne is significant because all through scripture, the right hand of God is the hand of his power and his authority. That scroll is secure in the hand of God. It's in a place of authority and power and uh, nothing could challenge its placement there. The fact that the scroll is written on two sides is uh, interesting. Because normally, from what I understand, (coughs) scrolls in those days were only written on one side. A typical scroll would be 30 to 34 feet long. You've got to roll that thing out. It'd have a lot of words in it. And it's written on one side. The fact that it's written on two sides suggests to us that this message is long and detailed and full. That the whole message is contained in one scroll, and they had to use both sides to get it all written in there. Whatever that message is, so that's significant. This scroll is pregnant with information and meaning, and the fact that it is covered is sealed with seven seals. Again, in those days, uh, you would uh, you would roll your scroll up, and then with. Candle wax. You would drip some on the on the place where the last page joins the rest of the scroll. You would seal it, <coughs> excuse me. And then a person with authority would have a ring of some sort, with a signet ring, and they would impress their 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 impression uh, into the wet uh, the the warm wax, and it would harden, and that was the seal. And only the intended person could unseal it, uh, and t- and had the right to be able to do that. And so the question that goes out in heaven is who's worthy to do that who can break the seals and open this scroll whatever it is verse 2 says and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals (coughs) and open the scroll last winter I read John Milton's Paradise Lost A famous book right it's about the fall in, a, in the Garden of Eden and all the background information. I don't know if you've ever read it, but uh, I started reading it. I got through five pages. I was working hard. I got through ten pages. and It's kind of old English. And, and Milton, the, the guy's a genius, and, and he wrote the whole, he dictated it because he was blind at that point in his life. Unbelievable. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, I'm reading it and kind of, what's going on here? And I, oh, I made it through another 10 pages. And by the time I got to page 30, I was hooked. I couldn't put it down. And I read that sucker all the way to the end and, uh, and was fascinated by the scene that he painted of heaven, of hell, of what goes on in the garden. <coughs> the creatures and the angels, the God's angels and the fallen angels are... They all have names and personalities, and they, and they are highly, highly intelligent and very subtle in their arguments. And you should see how Satan goes after Eve and after Adam and the dialogue way more than is in the Bible. It's all speculation, of course, but you find it to be true to the, to the script. Anyhow, when I read here, I saw a mighty angel. I think of one of John Milton's characters, phenomenal creatures they were in heaven. In fact, Matthew Henry, the commentator from the 18th century, writes, "This angel seems to come out as a champion with a challenge to any or all the creatures to try the strength of their wisdom in opening the counsels of God. No one in heaven or earth could accept the challenge and undertake the task. None under the earth, none of the fallen angels" Satan himself, with all of his subtlety, cannot do its creatures, sorry, cannot do it. The creatures cannot open it, nor look on it. They cannot read it. God only can do it. Notice the mighty angel doesn't say who's intelligent enough to open the scroll. He doesn't say who's strong enough to open the scroll. He doesn't say who's wise enough to open the scroll. He asks who is worthy. Worthiness uh, was the critical quality that the person who might be able to open the scroll must have. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could do it. No one even moved a muscle. kind of reminds me of that scene in 1 Samuel 17 where the army of the Philistines and the army of the Israelites were facing each other at the Valley of Elah. And uh, the Philistines had a champion named Goliath and he came out and he strutted up and down in front of the soldiers challenging Israel, send me a man to fight me, you know, we'll have it out and the winner will basically be crowned as the, as the winner of the whole war. And, and uh, Israel, for 40 days, no one from Israel went out, no one could, not even King Saul could face Goliath. And then someone did go out, remember, young lad named David. And, uh, and things changed greatly on that day. But uh, at this point, we have the standoff, and no one is able to do it. Verse 4 says, I wept. John is watching this, and he begins to weep. It says in New American Standard, I began to weep greatly. And here in the NIV, I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Causes the question to come to my mind. Why is John so upset? Why is he weeping? Something terrible is, is, is happening here. And John cannot control himself. The tears are flowing. It seems to have something to do. Well it has everything to do with the fact that no one can open the scroll. The question though is. What's in that scroll? That he is so upset. That we're at a standoff here. And we can't open the scroll. Something. Really, there's, a, there's like talk about tension in the air. The scroll says, author and pastor, Don Carson, the scroll contains God's purposes in redemption and judgment. What does that mean? <clears throat> the scroll contains God's will for the future. It contains his purposes. It contains what he's about to do. We're at a critical point here in, in the history of eternity and, uh, and it's all wrapped up inside this scroll, and no one can open it. It contains God's dealing with the re- dealings with the redeemed, God's people, the fifth with faith in Christ, and the lost, those who are outside of Christ, those who are living in rebellion against God. God's purposes for all of, all of humanity, all of heaven and, <clears throat> and earth and hell are contained in the scroll. It would appear that if the scroll remained unopened, and we know that it won't, but if it did remain unopened, God's just purposes would never be done. That is why John is weeping. John is part of the persecuted church, and just in his little world, Christians were being persecuted, put to death, abused, and thrown to lions and everything else, and, uh, and there's a need for justice in the world, and justice seems to be stopped at this point. John is weeping. Those who have done evil, if the scroll is not open, those who have done evil would remain unaccountable for their evil. It wouldn't matter. Those who have resisted evil and done right and paid the terrible price for doing right would be unappreciated and unrewarded forever. Upon this realization, John wept greatly. And so would you and I, if we were there watching this. And then something remarkable happens. One of the elders elbows John in the ribs, and he says, look at that. John looked up, and the elder said, behold, the Lion of Judah, the root of David. So what does this mean? The Lion of Judah. You know, as as popular as this title is for Jesus, this is the only time it's ever used in all of the Bible. It's never used again in the book of Revelation. The Lamb title takes over from here on. We'll get to that in a moment. But he is clearly identified as the Lion of Judah. What's the Lion of Judah? Isn't Judah one of the tribes of Israel? Yes, he was, and is. And uh, way back at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, the father of the 12 sons, Jacob, the father, the 12 sons, one of whom was Judah, gave his blessing to each of his sons before he died. And when it came time to give his blessing to Judah, this is part of what he said. Genesis 49, 8, 9, and 10. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, Until he comes, to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And what does all that mean? Sometimes it's hard to tell. But you step back a little bit, and you just get the gist of it, right? And the gist of it is there's authority and rulership in the tribe of Judah, and it's going to last forever. The nations, that's the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, are going to bow down. Like world dominion seems to lie somewhere in the future of Judah's line. Uh, Judah is compared to a lion's cub and a fierce warrior, and all of these things are there. And then, so that prophecy is given. The day ends. The brothers probably come to Judah and say, I wonder what dad was talking about there. And Judah would say, Beats me, I don't know. And it was just kind of forgotten. Life went on for a long time until now. And the lion of Judah is revealed. That prophecy is fulfilled. You see, Jesus came from the line of Judah, he came from the the family of David, and they all trace their origins back to Judah, and that prophecy was being fulfilled little by little, especially through King David, and then finally, ultimately and fully in this person who is stepping forward to break the seals on the scroll. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb. So John is told, look, Lion of Judah. He is able to open the scroll. John looks up, expecting to see, and he sees a lamb. And I saw a lamb. Let's, Let's notice what he saw. He saw a lamb, not a lion. He saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain recently. The word slain there in the Greek is a, is a graphic, graphically violent word. It means bloodily butchered and abused. And, uh, and that lamb appeared to have just gone through uh, a, uh, an experience like that, slain. Third thing he saw was that, well, it wasn't slain anymore. It's standing, like it's supposed to be dead, but it's not dead. And then not only standing, but it's standing in the center of the throne, And the lamb standing in the center of the throne is encircled by the four living beings and the 24 elders, and they are worshiping. Let's read verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Let's try to decode this a little bit. Nations uh, choose animals sometimes as their symbol, right? And often they'll choose an animal that's very powerful, very fierce to symbolize the, the American eagle, for example. Uh, the British, the UK, what's theirs is the lion, I think. Uh, India has the tiger. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's various ones. They're not all fierce, but many of them are. Canada has the beaver, Have you ever had a fight with a beaver? <laughs> Hardworking, dependable—I know, I know. But anyway, heaven's symbol is the lamb. Quite unlikely. Well, lion and lamb, right? And uh, the lion, we know what they stand for, and that is an aspect of the of the of the of the Messiah. But also, the lamb is more of his dominant uh, uh, identity. Uh, through the rest of the book of Revelation. But he's not a meek and quiet little lamb. He's a lamb, all right, but he's a lamb who is the lion. He is both. Remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature here, which I was trying to explain last week. And apocalyptic literature often mixes its metaphors. It'll be telling you one thing and painting one picture one minute, and another minute it's another picture, and you say, "Which which is right? They're both right. That's how apocalyptic literature works. I mean... An inadequate example is I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son, I am a son-in-law, I am a grandfather, I am a friend, I'm all those things. They're just aspects of who I am and roles that I play. And so Jesus is the lion, he is the lamb, he is both of those things, and both of those things are so very highly significant. So John sees now the lamb. Wow, the lamb that looks like it's been slain. Terrible. But it's not slain anymore. It's standing there. It seems to be alive. It's standing in the center of the throne. And and he goes on, and then he says it has seven horns. Horns in scripture uh, almost universally speak of power and authority. We don't use that symbolism today, but they did all through scripture. Power and authority. Seven is the number of completeness, especially in apocalyptic literature. Complete or full. He had complete and full Power and authority. That's what that means when I saw seven horns on the Lamb, And by the way, don't try to draw a picture of what John saw. It'll be grotesque. It'll be weird. Just take the words and let them speak their meaning to you. Don't, don't, Don't try to paint it. Seven horns. And he also had seven eyes. We saw last week, eyes speak of omniscience. They speak of seeing. Uh, the fact that God is all-seeing, seeing everything, everywhere, all the time. Seven means, again, fullness. God is fully omniscient and fully sees everything. And therefore is fit to judge everything because he knows everything and knows all truth. And then also the, he says, which are the seven spirits of God? And we, looked, we tried to look at what those seven spirits of God were last week. And we were scratching our heads. Are they seven aspects of the Holy Spirit or are they seven new types of spirit beings? After all, there were new beings being encountered in heaven all the time. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the cherubim and the seraphim. And maybe these are seven new types of spirits. I don't know. Just think of white light. When you shine white light through a prism, it separates out into its constituent colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. There's seven of them. And uh, perhaps, if, perhaps there are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit that are, are amazing and beautiful and powerful, Not, that doesn't mean we're reducing his deity. They're all deity, just as red light, blue light, and yellow light are all light. They're all the same thing, but, but we can tease out the meanings of them and see those aspects. Anyhow, these are all part of the lamb that John is seeing. Is this being a lion or a lamb? Both. Both different facets of the same reality. He's standing, looks as if he'd been slain, but he's standing. Well, I would remind you of someone who at one point was slain 2,000 years ago and very, very dead. And then three days later was very, very alive and standing again. This is picturing that enormous reality central to the gospel. Remember when John first met Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation in his glorified form, Jesus said this to him. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, when I saw him, said John, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. and Behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. <clears throat> He's standing in the center of the throne, and he's encircled by worshipers again. What does that imply? That sounds like something that's only possible if you are God. Answer, he is God. This is the deity of Christ pictured again in this scene that John is seeing here in in the center of God's throne. God's throne seems to be more than just one chair. You know, it seems to be a, a sphere or a region, and in the center of the region is the lamb and the lion, and then around that region is encircled by creatures who are worshiping the, the throne of God and the one who is on it. <coughs> but that's where the lamb is. He's in the center of the throne. There's a little bit of a, of a translation uncertainty here about in the center of the throne, Uh, in uh, the NIV and the New American Standard, but over in chapter 7, verse, I forget where, near the end of chapter 7, it's very clear and unambiguous, center of the throne, that's where the Lamb is, right there uh, in the center of all worship, authority, and power. Something wonderful (coughs) is happening here. This is amazing. But now, something else. Note verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We'll just stop there. He went and took the scroll. I want us to just think for a minute about how important that, that sentence is. This is something no one else in heaven, on earth, or under the earth could do. It's a remarkable and singular development. This scroll is in the right hand of all power and authority. And he comes and is able to seemingly very easily take it and receive it from the Father. And he begins to open it. There's a hidden reason why this is special. I want you to get it. Let's call this the mercy of restraint. To this point, we've only known a restrained Christ. Not restrained by some external force, that's not possible. It's a self restraint. This is a restraint he places upon himself as he is being revealed to us through history. For example, the baby in the manger was the restrained Christ. We had no clue who this being was laying there in that manger. That's the wonder of Christmas. It's amazing. Uh, but there was, there was Christ. Remember Philippians chapter 2, that he existed in the form of God, yet he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a man and of a servant and being obedient to the point. That's Christ restraining himself for our sake to get the task done that he has come for. And then as a boy, as a teenager, as a young man, he's very ordinary, very restrained, all of his glory and his power is, is under wraps, you might say. And then he begins his, his public ministry. And uh, he lifts the restraints here and there with the miracles, the works of power. Like he calms storms and multiplies bread and, and heals blind people, raises dead people. And people are going, wow, it's amazing. And then, and then but the next day he'd walk down the road just like an ordinary guy. Right? So the, the, the restraint was being, re, things were being revealed to us, but still it's mostly hidden. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration, where, where Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, and then he begins to shine, it says, like, brighter than the sun, if you can imagine that, just for like maybe five minutes, just a short time. He shines, and his clothing is whiter than any white they'd ever seen on earth, and Peter, James, and John are just aghast, and then... Stops, goes away. It's like he just lifted the curtain, zapped them, and closed it again. Peter remembered that to his last day. He writes about it in his second letter, 2 Peter 1, 16, somewhere in there. He says, we were witnesses of that. That's the restraint of Christ. He's arrested. He's stumbling along. His hands are tied. He's, He's beaten by soldiers. Crown of thorns on his head. He's abused, he's mocked, he's laughed at, he's condemned unjustly, and he's restrained. We read in Isaiah 53, like a lamb before it shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, what he could have said. What devastation would have happened if he had given the command. In the garden when he was arrested, he said, put away your sword. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? But no, now is not the time. The mercy of Restraint. So now we get to Revelation, so he died, he rose from the dead. Even today, all down through history, evil strides proudly and terribly through the earth, and Christ still exercises restraint. But now, verse 7, he steps forward, takes the scroll, and he's about to open it. Now, we don't get it opened until chapter 6, when the judgments begin to flow out on the earth. But now is the time when he will be restrained no longer. I just feel like shouting hallelujah. Like, oh, Lord. I get this newsletter, uh, (coughs) and it's prayer requests. It's a daily prayer request for various organizations that uh, do, do justice work in the name of Christ around the world, International Justice Mission. Agape International Ministry, Ratnick International, Joy Smith Foundation, Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, and they they have prayer requests in there, one for each day, just just two or three sentences. And they describe situations of terrible depravity and terrible injustice. A lot of it has to do with the sex trade, sex slaves, or slavery in the world where young boys are taken and and made to work for nothing, beaten and, and worked... 14, 16 hours a day on fishing trawlers or making bricks in certain countries. It's a horrible, horrible life. And they're asking us to pray that the perpetrators of these evil would be, would be captured and, and, and sentenced properly. And, and they're making a little progress, lots of progress, but it's like a drop in the bucket. I get the impression of, I long for the scroll to be opened. That'll be a terrible day if you're on the wrong side. In a wonderful day if you're in Christ. I hope you are. When the scroll is opened, the unrewarded will be rewarded. The first who were strutting around in their first place cockiness will be placed last. The last who were humbly Living faithfully for God will be given first place. We know Jesus talked about that. The humble will be exalted. The proud will be abased. All wrongs will be made right. That's why this verse is so important. It's about to happen. You say, John, do do you really believe that's going to happen? I do. It's my hope. And the Lord who does no wrong and who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just will exercise perfect justice in the world. May that inspire you and me how we live today with faith in Christ. Don't get sloppy. Don't live as though it doesn't matter. It does matter. Okay, we've got to hurry along here. A few important lessons as we wrap up. The first one is... Be very, very careful, I speak to myself, I speak to you (coughs) about that human tendency to reduce God down to a manageable size. We just keep on doing that, we dumb him down, we make him look silly, we we tell myths, fables and untruths to ourselves about God, to somehow domesticate God, or just with a good conscience be able to dismiss him as irrelevant. Uh, nearly as important as all the things we have to deal with in this life right now. Angels are reduced in, in pictures and art forms sometimes to bare-bum little babies with, with wings and twinning around and curly hair. And, and uh, not the mighty angels that have that Revelation speaks of. Jesus often is pictured as pale, frail, placid, and just a nice guy. Uh, People in heaven are floating around, playing harps, singing boring hymns, and heaven is like, oh boy, who wants to go there? More excitement down here. Sitting in front of the pearly gates. In hell, Satan is a comical figure carrying a pitchfork, wearing red tights, sporting a tail and horns. These images are so ridiculous, they are not to be taken in any way seriously. That's the, the masterful Uh, subtlety of Satan's message to us all. A.W. Tozer, I'm quoting him again, says, Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him to where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God that we can, in some measure, control. So let us be careful of that. Take a regular dose of Revelation 4 and 5, uh, maybe once a week or so. Uh, Number two, God's judgment gives meaning to our lives. God's judgment means that everything I say and everything I do means something. It has has impact. It is being noticed and it will be remembered. There's nothing more meaningless than knowing that what I do doesn't matter. What I do isn't being noticed. Nobody cares about what I do. The message of Revelation 4 and all through Revelation is that God cares what we do and he gives meaning to what we do and some of that meaning if we are living in an unrepentant state will be terrible, a terrible discovery and others of us who by God's grace and God's grace alone have been halfway faithful will be rewarded in that way and that will be the most meaningful moment in all of your life. No one in hell will be able to say my life is meaningless anymore. They will realize everything I did mattered. Everything counted. Woe is me. But they'll have meaning. A terrible one. Everything you do matters. Let God give us meaning. We've been created in his image. Created for a relationship with him. Called into redemption. We try in this meaningless world where we are told that we are just highly evolved animals with no, with, that we got here purely by accident, that we have no meaning. And so we try to give ourselves meaning because human beings need meaning and they crave for meaning because we've been made in the image of God. And so we give ourselves meaning meaning by, by accumulating toys and possessions and materialistic things and pleasures. That's what we get. That's, that's our meaning. It's entertainment. Number three. Notice the interweaving of repeated threads through scripture and how they all resolve in harmony in the person of Christ when he is revealed in heaven. That's a long sentence. But uh, all through scripture, you've got the theme of the Lamb. You've got the lamb in Genesis 22 where Isaac said to his father, Dad, here's the fire and the the wood and everything, but where's the lamb for the offering? And and Abraham, hardly knowing what he said, said, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. There's the first little tiny clue that God would provide the sacrifice for us in our place. It happened in a small moment of a day then, but it was a, a hint. Exodus 12 The lamb had to be slain. His blood painted on the literal doorposts of your house. Go inside and you are safe from the wrath of God. But the lamb was the key to our safety. The lamb is important. All through the sacrificial system uh, of, uh, of the Old Testament, lambs were dying and dying and in our place being substituted for the sinner and bearing the punishment of the sinner. The day of atonement, a lamb had to die and its blood was brought into the presence of God inside the tabernacle. And, 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 and that was an atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. Very important moment. Then in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus from a distance and he says, did he really know what he was saying? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here we have the elder elbowing John in the ribs and saying, there's the Lamb. It's like, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. The Lion of Judah predicted in Genesis, revealed in Revelation. There are themes. It gives me confidence in Scripture. Written over 1,600 years by 40 different writers, and yet the lines of of consistency all through Scripture speak to me as if one mind had, had inspired all of those writers. One mind did. All Scripture is inspired by God. So, have confidence in the scripture. You, you know, sometimes you're wading along through certain things and you go, oh man, what's going on here? Keep reading to the end uh, and uh, things do resolve into the, the, the perfect picture. Lastly, lastly, notice the presence of central gospel truths in heaven. I refer at this point, to the Lamb who was slain. That's central to the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross and then rising again, the Lamb standing on the throne <coughs> in the middle of the throne. <coughs> there are movements afoot in the world today to remove the cross from our message. Too bloody, doesn't fit well with our culture, too gory. Too terrible. How do you expect anybody to be attracted to, to, the, to our faith, our wonderful faith, our wonderful Jesus, when you're always going on about the suffering and the pain and the agony and the, the blood and the scars and everything on the cross? Got to get rid of that. And there are, there are quote, Christians who are, who are part of a movement to do that. They will, If they get to heaven, they will be surprised at the centrality of the cross of Christ. When we are there, it's central to our worship. See more of that next week you got to be here for that. Yes, the cross is bloody. It's terrible. It's violent. You know why? Because sin is so terrible. Sin has penetrated so deeply into the human heart and into the human race. It is so deeply entrenched that it took a horrible, terrible price to root it loose which it finally will be someday. Your atonement and my atonement comes at great cost. Let us not forget that. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we rejoice that you are worthy to take and open the scroll. Only you. We rejoice that the fullness of justice and fullness of reward will take place surely someday, and you will be the key. We rejoice that these matters are in your hands and that you are good and you will do no wrong. We worship you, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah this morning. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to join us uh, in singing our final song by standing with us. You give up.